Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. And we're coming at you with a special bonus episode. First one ever. And we hope you guys enjoy it. How you doing, Derek? Great. Yeah, I love this because uh, we're special and you are listeners. You're special. <laughs> so you should get a special episode. Should get a special episode. We're going to hope to be able to do more of these in the future. Uh, we've already talked about the circumstances under which we would like to do more of these, but uh, you'll be hearing more from us online about that. But for the time being, we do want to just acknowledge that uh, this particular episode is probably going to be the first one that a lot of our new listeners uh, actually hear and uh, be exposed to. So we wanted to take a moment to just talk a little bit about who we are before we introduce the subject of this particular episode. So uh, this is a brief introduction to uh, Derek and myself. Derek, what do you want the people to know about you? Can you say a little bit about... Yeah, well, I'm an educator and biblical scholar. I'm from Texas. I moved here to Boston a number of years ago. I love engaging the scriptures, trying to make them relevant to people, help them come alive. I am a Latter-day Saint, and I'm a convert to the church. I was baptized just over four years ago. I'm doing well. I'm thriving and uh, I love talking here with my friend James. Did I say my name? Derek Knox? <laughs> you did now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my name, Derek Knox. Uh, and here's my friend James. Yes, I'm James Jones. I am a musician, actor, and voiceover artist by trade. I moved out here to the Boston area about six years ago uh, to sing music full-time professionally. And uh, I've been a member of the church my entire life. Uh, whole nine, I served a mission. In South Africa, Cape Town Mission, I finished. I went to school at BYU, finished four years, got a degree in psychology that I have yet to use, and have been in Boston just doing, you know, music ever since. I'm not a scholar like Derek, but I love the gospel deeply, and I care very much about making it accessible to everyone, which is why Derek and I are here. Mm. And we've known each other about three years now? Yeah, about right? three years. I think Derek and I met through our mutual love of music. Derek yeah. is also a singer. He didn't say that initially. Yeah. But uh, Derek is a singer, and uh, we met singing in this, uh, you know, basically in a church choir production, and we've been friends ever since, yeah. talking about our love of the gospel and our passions for uh, social justice and uh, the intersections of both of those subjects. Anything else we leave out, Derek? That's about it. All right, sweet. So with that, uh, we want to introduce this uh, special bonus episode, topic of which talking basically about why Derek and I uh, believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A lot of people, when they get to know us or simply see us, uh, have those questions. And these are questions that uh, Derek and I probably wouldn't answer under normal circumstances. These are very... I mean, this is a very personal question of uh, why we believe and why we are here in the church. Mm -hmm. And um, we are very picky about where we uh, put that energy in explaining ourselves. Not everybody has the best of intentions when it comes to asking that particular question, but we do think that answer is important and it does merit sharing to the right crowd. And chances are, if you are listening to this episode, you probably are the right crowd. And uh, Derek and I are currently in a space where we are spiritually and emotionally and mentally prepared to do that much. So that'll be the balance of the time for this particular episode is the two of us talking about uh, why we believe. We don't have any particular form or fashion of this. We'll just be answering and asking each other a bunch of questions, hopefully directed to this particular end of why we believe, where our faith comes from. Why we believe. Yada, yada. So anyway... Derek, um, what 
one or two teachings, but one, narrow it down if you can, do you find most beautiful and unique about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, about our doctrine? Well, I find there there's so many I could name, but one that's coming to mind is this idea of continuing revelation, both for the entire people of God and for us as individuals. We as a church strongly emphasize both of those as an integral and actually essential part of navigating this mortal world. Mm. And, uh, you know, because I, I know what it's like to be in a church that doesn't have a living prophet. And mm-hmm. and there's there's something there that's that's like we had to make do the best we could with the Bible. And, and, and that's the end. That's all that God said to us. It's like he sent us a love letter 2,000 years ago, and that's the last we've heard of, from him <laughs> in any official you know, authoritative way. Right. And here we have the the privilege of, of what I would say, like breathing in again. Like we as a Christian church, we, um, I mean, the whole Christian church for 2000 years, we've been holding our breath. We haven't had any new uh, inspiration the same way. And in the 19th century, it was like breathing in after holding your breath for 18 centuries. And I think <laughs> there's something refreshing about that. Yeah, definitely. I like that a lot. Uh, that's actually. What about you? Tell me your what. What's one of your? I, I was actually going to say that same thing, and I was going to quote John Taylor to do it. John Taylor was the uh, third prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and I really liked what he had to say about the value of a living prophet because this is actually one thing that I greatly value is essentially a, having what amounts to a modern day Moses or a modern day Noah or a modern day Abraham, whatever prophet you hold in high esteem from the Old or the New Testament, I like this idea of having somebody, having a living church. Um, John Taylor said something along the lines of, has anyone heard of true religion without communication from God? Mm -hmm. To me, it is the most hollow thing I can think of personally is to have a church that cannot put me on rapport with God and breathe into me the new life of the living gospel. Like if something cannot do that, I don't want any part with it. Like this is something I crave when it comes to, you know, any religious institution. Are you going to put me in rapport with God? Are you going to communicate? Are you going to have somebody communicating to God with God on my behalf and vice versa? This is something that I think a church that cha- that claims to be God's church would absolutely require. So, um, that, that, is, that is mine as well. That is ultimately one of the things I find most uh, beautiful of the church. You said it more eloquently than I did, so I'm just going to go ahead and add. I, I really like the uh, idea of vicarious ordinances. That is probably my second uh, favorite thing about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and uh, something that if I was not part of the church, the thing I would probably most cultivate a holy envy for is just this idea that if there are people that have passed on, there are other religions that don't believe. If you passed on without the opportunity to accept Christ or to be baptized or to receive any other ordinances, that that's it for you. That's the only chance you get. You're basically hanging out in purgatory forever or whatever. And uh, I really like that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe in vicarious ordinances. We believe that if somebody has passed on, you can, in their stead, be baptized or receive any other saving ordinance on their behalf. I just think that is such a beautiful thing because it kind of emulates what Christ has done for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this idea that we can partake of a type of that as just mortals, as people that aren't Christ, 
is a very beautiful thing to me. It's just one more way that we go about serving each other and binding the human family together is that interdependence we have on each other. Right. And I just think that's really beautiful. And that it's so beautiful that, and it's so liberatory to realize that God isn't bound by deadlines. Is yes. That there's something expansive about our salvation vision of the, of our, of the human family is, yes. is that God isn't, stuck in this game of gotcha and trapped yes but actually is willing to do anything and everything to redeem the living and the dead yes sir all right uh let's get to uh some of the meatier stuff now derek i'm just going to ask kind of broadly and probably ask some follow-up questions and interrupt you throughout the course oh, of good. this but uh let me just start with the broad question of how did you gain your testimony Oh no, we don't have enough time. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, it, so it was uh, overall. So I've so my field is religious studies. So it's not like I didn't know about the church. People ask me, "Well, how did you hear about us?" I'm like, "It's like asking a zookeeper, how did you hear about zebras?" Everyone knows. <laughs> I mean, everyone knows the the weird ones, right? Yeah. So as a as a religious scholar, I mean, like. I've known about the scriptures, the history, and the doctrine of the church for many, 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 many years beforehand. So you grew up, did you grow up as a Christian? I did, yes. You I did. grew up with the Bible. You grew up with um, the Bible, you grew up a Christian. Your parents, yep. I assume, took you to church and all yes, that stuff. yeah. Okay. So I grew up with a, a very passionate love of the Bible, which I have not uh, at all abolished. In he myself. has not lost it at all. <laughs> not lost it at all. <laughs> and that's actually kind of one of the effects of joining this church and being open to a renewed sense of, of God speaking again is that for me, the Bible came alive. Like mm. I grew up with, imagine if you grew up. Well, okay. So I grew up knowing ab about the Bible and oh look, there were prophets back then and there were temples back then, but they no longer exist. They were destroyed and there's miracles and all of this uh, amazing spiritual outpouring of gifts and this charismatic sense of what's going on in the new Testament, all these things. I'm like, yeah, well that just happened long ago in some other continent. And, but it's kind of like for me, I grew up with that. I knew, knew the Bible fairly well and then imagine if you grew up with Harry Potter, you had all the spells memorized, you were a Harry Potter nerd, and then when you were 19 or so, someone looking like Hagrid came up to you and said, guess what, James? It's all real. Wow, that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Like everything in the Bible came back to life again. You know, the heavens are open again. We've got apostles and prophets again. We've got temples again. We've got miracles again. We've got all these stuff, all this stuff. I thought, well, that just happened... No, it's real, and we're God's covenant people again. And to me, that was that was the Bible came alive, and so I went from a religion about the Bible to the religion of the Bible, the same religion and faith that the people in the Bible had, and the same relationship and covenant with God. I mean, it's just so beautiful, and that it, it just came alive for me. Okay, and that's kind of uh, that's that's one one thing that point that people might not realize if you grew up in the church. Mm. Yeah. I think that's definitely something we would take for granted, not having that experience. And uh, can you say more about uh, how, I mean, that's how you gained your testimony. Can you say a little bit more about how yeah. you ultimately came to, I suppose, join the church or how the missionaries yeah. like, so what happened was it was a long process over the course of eight months since I contacted the missionaries I learned with them, and it wasn't anything that they particularly said. I wouldn't that imagine wasn't it would have been. <laughs> they didn't tell me anything new. But for some reason, 
my perspective changed. It's like I had all the puzzle pieces on the table, but I had never put them together that way before. And my mind was opened to say, hey, what if I look at this a different way? Mm. And then all of a sudden everything clicked into place. I knew that this was the place for me. I knew that God had actually restored his church again, and I was going to be a part of it. And so eight months after I contacted the missionaries, then I I was baptized, and I'm still here. You're and, still and here. You kn- and you didn't know me at this point. I did not. I did yeah. not. In fact, uh, my first, I suppose, ecclesiastical experience with Derek actually came when um, he received the Melchizedek Priesthood. This was shortly after we made each other's acquaintance. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first events he invited me to was his uh, ordination to the Melchizedek Priesthood. And uh, it's uh, rare that people receive it before their year mark. Derek received it at like right at it or a year and a half a year and a half well yeah it was a little yeah about that it was about that okay so like Derek and that particular experience was really enriching for me because I didn't experience anything like this but Derek's uh, ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood there were several people present about 20 people uh, including members of other faiths Uh, Derek received the Melchizedek priesthood and he said some very beautiful words he made the mistake of letting me speak (laughs) (laughs) something else that i never saw before uh was somebody who you know shared some words afterward but you know derek shared some beautiful words afterward anyway that was my first ecclesiastical experience with derek was uh witnessing him receive the melchizedek priesthood and uh, subsequently talking about uh, that gift afterward to a very to a very receptive and very loving ward who knew everything they needed to know about derek and uh, where he stood on uh, stood on the scriptures, stood on the gospel, and where he was with regard to his sexuality. Oh, but you asked me about putting the puzzle. I think I was talking about putting all the puzzle pieces yes, together sir. and knowing that this was the right decision. Yeah. And there was an element of personal revelation involved, like because I did not come from a background that was biased to to join this church. I was actually uh-huh. biased against it. I grew yeah. up in a Bible believing house that, like, oh, the Mormons are all wacko following following a false prob- prophet right. and they don't get the bible right and they're all right. going to hell I, mm-hmm. I actually had mormon friends when i was in high school i thought they were all going to hell <laughs> <laughs> and so coming from a background where every one of my biases was actually against me joining this church to take this step that's how i know it was from god because i on my own would have never come up with this idea that actually came from outside me i was ecstatically grabbed by something outside me and brought into this living faith um, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like, that's, that's kind of where I am. Okay. I have to ask because that is basically one of the things that we do throughout the entire show is talk Mm. about the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ for people on the margins of society. Now you knew, and I also want to add that uh, you joined the church shortly after the initial announcement of the exclusion policy. Did you not? I did. Right, yeah. right. So can you talk a little bit more about that experience of joining the church as a queer individual and creating a space for yourself in that community? Yeah, I definitely claimed a space for myself. I was not intimidated. I was not afraid. I was investigating the church. Um, and November 5th, 2015, obviously, the policy came out. And I read it. I looked at it on my phone and I wasn't sad and I wasn't mad. I just looked at my phone and said, okay, I have more work to do. <laughs> and I rolled up my sleeves and, and kept on going. I had my baptismal interview with the mission president two days later. 
on November 7th, 2015, and then I was baptized um, December 5th, 2015, a month after the policy. And guess what? The policy's gone, but I'm not. I actually, I lasted longer than that policy. So, <laughs> and I knew it was going to be gone yeah. at some point. So. Yeah. Now, uh, the people that are listening to this are going to say to themselves, probably some are going to say to themselves, I don't know if I could do what Derek did. Uh, Derek had the assurance or had the ability to stay in a church that for all intents and purposes was not granting him his full humanity or granting and still people, doesn't and it still doesn't right. but Derek joined anyway in spite of that I don't think I could do that what would you say to such individuals well for me I I I hate to say it's because I knew the Savior so well because then that makes it sound like the people who can't do it don't know the Savior that's not what I'm saying right because maybe the Savior has different plans for them. That's totally fine. But for me, I was—I have enough luxury and privilege that I was able to take this step. I have um, the, the better you know the scriptures, the less you're able to be bullied by them. Uh-huh. And I think I brought that. I brought a lot of resources with me. I've spent years in, in pro-gay environments and a pro-gay Christian church context and I have a reserve of of tremendous dignity and security that people who who are gay who grow up at the church may never have gotten. Right. So it's very different. Like I it, it it's just not possible to really discourage me from from this path. I just don't I ha yeah, I don't know how to say it in any other way other than I I know that God's leading me and that God told me to take the step and that God is promising everything along the way. Now it has, I ha I'm not saying I know everything about the journey to me. It's been a lot like a trapeze, uh, situation where you let go of one bar and you fly through the air and hope that the next bar is right where you need it at the mm -hmm. right time. And that's what's happened for me. I don't have everything, but God has made the next step clear to me just as I needed it. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that a living God is leading me through this journey and I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm just not afraid. Mm. Cause you know that there's going to be a next step revealed right. to you. Be and there always, yeah. and there always has been since you arrived. And you know that reminds me of of one of the maybe this is another one of the uh, you know you know some people might say what is, what is one unique thing about our church that we have and and some people would say eternal families and yeah that's that's a significant part of it and including the the idea of linking the entire human family. But another thing that I would point out is that we, my view is that we as a church have the highest view of LGBT people of anyone because we have the highest view of people. If you look at what we say about where we came from, who we are, and where we're going, we our our view of humanity is so high that other Christians think it's idolatrous. <laughs> if you look at our view of of they made a whole movie about it. And yeah, the God makers. Yes. That uh that's how edgy we are. That's how <laughs> uh that's how strongly we believe in the dignity. We have unlimited potential, priceless worth. All of us. All of us all all means all, right? Yeah. And that dignifies the, my soul as a queer person in a way that you can't because because if 
I am a truly a child of God. Let's think about this in terms of what a what a puppy is. The offspring offspring of a dog is called a puppy. The offspring of a cat is called a kitten. And kittens grow up to be cats, and puppies grow up to be dogs. If we are the children of God, what do we grow up to be? Mm-hmm. Like, no other Christian church really answers that question. Right, right. They take it very figuratively and and say and say that we're just mere creations of God. But if I am, a, in a sense, co-eternal with God, mm-hmm. um, uncreated and, and in have this unlimited potential dignity— of becoming co-equal with God, like, what does that say about me? What is that? Right. Uh, there's no way right. that that you can diminish my soul. I have actually a claim on God. Yeah, I have yeah. a claim on God, and and that's kind of one of my biggest models of faith is Genesis 32, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. You know this story, yes, sir. So this a, the angel of the Lord comes in the middle of the night and and grabs hold of Jacob and they wrestle all all night and I'm not going to put that in a homoerotic direction but what I will say is that uh, the angel says let me go because it's the dawn is about to break and Jacob says and this is this is basically my definition of faith I am not going to let you go until you bless me mm-hmm. and because of that he was renamed Israel which Israel <laughs> means one who wrestles, with, wrestles God. with God <laughs> because he prevailed yeah. to me we can wrestle with God yeah. because we're the offspring of God. We're the same species in a sense. Right. And so we have a claim on God. And people love to, to quote the Joseph Smith statement that obedience is the first law of heaven and use that to diminish people's humanity and make them conform. But what is the greatest law? Love. Yes, sir. Right. But where I'm going with this is oh, actually Where are you interesting. Going with this? <laughs> You should know. It's interesting. You should know that there's always there's always gonna be something more than you you plan for when I'm yeah, talking. my bad. Where I'm going with this? Okay, so obedience is the first law of heaven. Why did Joseph Smith say obedience is the first law of heaven, and not obedience is the first law of earth? It's because this applies to even God. Uh huh. And so God has bounds, and God has constraints, and God has obligations so we can hold God accountable to those obligations because obedience is the first law of God's heaven uh-huh. and we can say God you need to treat me this way because the laws of the universe are just and you need to conform to them right. and we have a claim on God we can wrestle with God mm-hmm. in a way that we can't legitimately do if we were just a, a creation uh, that that could be created and destroyed and God can do whatever he wants we actually have a claim as God's offspring in a very specific way. And that reminds me of what DNC 82 verse 10 says, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. Mm. So we can actually bind God. Yes, sir. And our obedience isn't as a robot or as a servant or as a someone who's uh, constrained. Our obedience is modeled after God's obedience. Yeah. And be, the only reason we're obedient is because God is obedient, which means God's obedience, that's the first law of heaven. We can hold God accountable to love. Yes, sir. We can hold God accountable to all these things. Mm-hmm. And this is why how I subvert this whole obedience as the first law of heaven from being used against us to being used for us. Okay. That actually was going to lead to my next question, and I don't know how much more you want to say about this, but uh, my next question is, how do you use your faith 
to underscore your advocacy? Well, to me, a lot of it comes back to the scriptures. Like I look at the scriptures and here's the other legitimacy of the Latter-day Saint view is we're supposed to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. Yeah. We're not limited to the historical critical meaning. We're not limited to what is the original interpretation that can be recovered that this would have meant to the original audience. Yes, that's the beginning of the conversation for a scholar, but that's not the end. And so we can say I can legitimately read the Bible as a gay dude. I can legitimately read the Book of Mormon as a gay person and put my full self in there. And that's sort of the core and root of my advocacy here is Mm. reading it and seeing what do I notice? What do other people not notice? Mm. Brilliant. Anything else you want to put out there for the folks? Um. I, I don't think I really a- adequately explained like why I joined the church, which probably <laughs> I because ca- th- I can't probably do it in in such a short amount of time. But one thing is, uh, it's it's a a call situation, an invitation. I got a direct invitation from God saying, "Take this step, everything will be okay." Um, take take this uh, the step and and join in the story of God's people. That's really what the scriptures are about. They're not really a lot of lists of things to do or lists of things to believe, but they're stories. They're narratives that, in some sense, we as Latter Day Saints believe are the Bible's unfinished. Right. That there's more. To, there's another act to the to this to the story. Yeah. You know, the curtain it, it hasn't been drawn. There's another act. And we get to be part of that act. And I think it's so beautiful that we get to step in and be part of God's never-ending story. Mm. And and I heard that invitation so clearly um, that that I can't deny it now. Mm. And there's, there's no way I could go back. It's kind of like if you know a... a Matrix sup- reference. Matrix reference. No. Dang it. Okay, I thought you were going there. A magic trick. So suppose okay. you see a magic trick and you're like, wow, that is so mysterious. I have no idea how it's done. I, I'm baffled by it. And then someone teaches you how to do that magic trick. Then the magic is gone. The magic is gone, but the knowledge cannot be erased. You yeah. can't go back Yeah. and I- I have the same naivete and wonder of like, oh, I just didn't know how that was done. You know how it was done. And yeah. You, you know. I think that's the same thing with me. Now that I know the truth, there's no way of going back. Mm-hmm. The, the contrast is so, so stark. And so mm-hmm. there's no way of unknowing God's love for me and God's path for me and, and taking this step. And I knew when I joined this church that I'm going to be a lifelong member. A lot of people probably thought, oh, you're not going to last very long. But I really knew that God called me to this. And uh, God prepared me over a l- many decades for this. And and that's kind of why I joined the church and why I stay. Is And I don't really have any other answer other than sort of my own personal revelation cohering with the revelation to God's people in the scriptures and having it make sense. And I love that this, I was going to talk a little bit about believing, belonging, and becoming, and that's the believing part. And But I've also become part of a community. I've mm-hmm. joined a tribe. I've joined God's covenant people. And there's there's a whole bunch of social and communal aspects to that that actually make sense as well. And then becoming... I'm living into more into my potential as a son of God. For me, the gospel is like an apprenticeship program to become more like Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. Right. And that's the journey that I'm on, and it just is so fulfilling and satisfying, and it makes sense, and it makes my life better. It makes me a better person. All of it coheres together, and that's why I, I'm on this step. 
and cool. we're not doing it alone. I think the the fact of that this gospel tells us that we're not alone in the world, that there is a God who loves us and there's a community that stands by us. Yeah. That's dope, man. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. So now can I ask you some questions? Are you ready for that? No, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So let me just ask you some questions. Tell me a little bit how you gained your testimony. Gosh. Um, you know, that uh, that too is a bit of a long a bit of a long story and I can't isolate one particular moment. I will say one thing that really like wore on me growing up was hearing the testimonies of people, my peers and uh, adults that I looked up to in particular who talked about this one moment in their past where they were like, I just knew the church was true in that particular moment. Mm. I never really had a moment like that, but I did have like some people's testimonies seemed to turn on like a light switch. Mine wasn't like that. Mine turned on more like a volume knob, you know? Uh-huh. I feel like I was just in a space. I was in a dark room and just somebody turned the dimmer up, up, up until I realized, oh, I'm in a well-lit room. This is neat. Mm-hmm. Like, that's more how my experience was. Now, what about the, what was the time frame of that, this, the turning up? Was it around your baptism? Was it around your mission? Was it around, like, it was like very. It was like varying degrees of it. Like, I, I definitely remember my baptism. I remember the day my baptism clear as day. I was only eight years old, you mm-hmm. know. But I do remember feeling the spirit that day. I remember some of the words in my confirmation blessing. I remember in my confirmation blessing, actually, that whoever confirmed me said I was going to serve my mission in Africa. Like, wow. this was when I was, eight, when I was eight years old, might, might I add. Someone told me, like, basically a prophecy that I would serve my mission in Africa. And sure enough, I served my mission in Africa some 11 years later. So um, I definitely felt a degree of it there. And I had what I like to call anti-spiritual experiences things that put me in a lot of trouble, but also put me in a position to be able to feel the spirit. For example, uh, I started a, I started a sexual exploration fairly late in my adolescence. Like I think I was about around 12 when I became aware of that and decided to explore it. Mm-hmm. However, I was doing it in an unhealthy and compulsive ways. And by the time I knew that what I was doing might be sinful, I was like, I better talk to somebody about it. And fortunately, I had a really cool bishop at the time who was just you know, really chill about stuff. He had no guile, no pretense to him whatsoever. So I felt super comfortable with him. And I remember sitting in his office, be like, hey, Bishop, uh, I was watching professional wrestling and the guy on TV said that masturbation was a sin. Is this true? Oh, okay. I thought you were saying I was watching professional wrestling and that led me to masturbation. (laughs) Okay. Somehow that didn't go where I thought it was going to (laughs) go. I'm glad we cleared that up, by the way. But no, I remember forever the day this happened. And I felt like God was directly talking to me that day because I was watching professional wrestling. Like this was already kind of a waste of my time as a high schooler anyway. But like college college wrestlers are hotter anyway. (laughs) Probably right. But anyway, there is this they do something on professional wrestling called promos where a wrestler just comes out and starts talking to people. And the first words out of his mouth were, I want to talk to you masturbators. Masturbation is a sin. I was like, oh my gosh. I did not think I was going to get that when I watched professional wrestling tonight. So I like <laughs> went in. I was like, like I called the bishop on my landline that night. I was like, hey, bishop, can we talk on Sunday? And he was like, yeah, it's cool. We'll, we'll talk. And you, you were know? 12. I was like 12 at this point. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I went into his office and we had a discussion about it. And I was like, Bishop, I feel like this might be a sin. Is this a sin? And, you know, he wouldn't directly come out and say yes, but he did say in certain circumstances that it 
probably is. And if I feel any kind of guilt, I did the right thing by coming to him and talking about it. And the thing is, the reason I felt guilt, I can say this in retrospect, is because I was doing it compulsively. Like it was like a bedtime ritual or whatever. Like I, I couldn't go to bed without it. You know what I'm saying? And that was the problem. And, um, you know, the bishop talked to me about it. He, again, he was really cool about it. Very non-judgmental. But I will never forget the feeling I had when I walked out of his office. I felt a huge weight off of my shoulders. I think that's the first time I felt the atonement of Jesus Christ that powerfully. You know what uh-huh. I'm saying? This was when I felt. I, I used to hear my relatives, like particularly my relatives that weren't in the church, when they told me about how to deal with a hardship in life, they, they'd always say something super vague, like, just put it on Jesus. Just put it on Jesus. <laughs> what the heck does that I mean? mean? What does that mean? I had no idea what it meant. But I knew, I learned that day, this is how you put things on Jesus. You mm-hmm. come to him with your weaknesses, you pray about them, and then he can bring that weight off of you because what you're actually doing is you're accepting his grace in your life. You are accepting that you can actually be more than what you are with his help. I felt his help that day because he gave me the strength to walk into my bishop's office, and he is the reason that I was able to feel the forgiveness that I felt in that moment. So that is one anti-spiritual experience. Uh, the second one came when I was about 19 years old. I was in, um, I was in Tacoma, Washington. I was selling summer security systems and I was not enjoying myself. In fact, it's probably the most miserable I've ever been, but this is the experience that stands out. One day I was like taking a break. I was sitting on a park bench, reading an investigator copy of the book of Mormon. And this park was surrounded by this massive street that just went around. And this uh, guy in his like late 40s, early 50s was jogging around it. He approached me and he asked me what I was reading. I told him I was reading the Book of Mormon. I don't think he knew I was Mormon at this time because he didn't talk to me like I was Mormon. He said, I would be careful with those Mormons. That's what he said. (laughs) And then he just proceeded. That's what I didn't do. I got... I, uh, <laughs> but anyway, he proceeded to just lay into me about the church's lack of archaeological evidence, their racism, the polygamy, the truth claims. And this was a black dude? No, he oh. was a white dude. Okay. He was like, again, late 40s, early 50s, white dude, clearly Christian. But I didn't ask for any of this. But for about 10 minutes, he just proceeded to lay into me about the lack of veracity that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints held. And I just felt icky about the whole thing. Like nothing about this felt good at all. And I was like, first of all, what are you gaining through this? Like, what are you doing for me by just taking a dump on the church? Like, what has the church done to you that you feel like you have to do this to me right now? Can Uh I just read my Book of Mormon in peace? Because one of the first things I said to him was, the Book of Mormon testifies of Christ. Like, that is why I'm reading it. It says things about Christ. That is why I read it. I like Jesus. So I read the Book of Mormon because it talks about Jesus. And Mm. it says that Jesus is the Christ. But that wasn't good enough for this dude. He had to proceed to tell me everything. Nothing related to Jesus. But... (laughs) Everything about why the church is a problem. And after he left, I remember just sitting on that park bench and stewing just about how miserable and how ugly I felt. Like, this is not the spirit of Christ. This is not what a Christian does. And in that moment, I remember resolving to myself that I was not going to be caught in this position again. Like, this was my introduction to apologetics, actually. So shortly after I returned from selling security systems, I wasn't going back to school. In fact, all I was doing was working. So I had a lot of time when I was not working to study the scriptures. I spent every day in the Book of Mormon. I was online. I was reading uh, Apologia. You know, I got a little book called the Missionary's Handbook, a little Missionary's Little Book of Answers by Gilbert Sharfs, and I devoured that thing. I memorized the answer to every question that dude had and every criticism he had. I was on my game, 
and I built a strong testimony. I read the Book of Mormon. I knew it was true. Mm-hmm. I read the explanations. I knew they were acceptable. And this was right before your mission? This was right before my mission. Okay. And I will say, like, not to toot my own horn, but I was very prepared. Like, in my district, I was the most prepared, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, would ha- I would go on to serve my mission. I had several... Uh, you know, I had several leadership responsibilities or whatever, and I had a relatively successful mission for, you know, somebody that served in South Africa. And I credit that to my preparation that was spurred on by this, you know, 40, 50 year old dude who decided to just take a dump on my faith. Not, and did that development continue during your mission and after? It did. Okay. It did. Particularly what I learned during my mission was how to feel the spirit. I don't think I really developed an education on how to feel the spirit. And I think one of my, another significant anti-spiritual experience happened while I was on my mission. Um, and why do you call them anti-spiritual? Because I did exactly what I was not supposed to do. And in so doing, I learned to do exactly what I was supposed to do. Like Joseph deciding to give the 116 pages to Sidney Rigdon or sorry to, uh, to, uh, Martin Harris. That was his anti-spiritual experience. You know what I'm saying? Now this anti-spiritual experience on my mission I was learning how the spirit felt and I was doing a pretty good job of learning how the spirit felt. One day I was out with the elders on a P day and I felt prompted to go talk to this random guy in a shopping mall that we were at to do some shopping. Uh I didn't speak to him. Um, So I walked around the mall some more. I walk around the mall. I find this guy again and I get the prompting again. Go talk to this guy about the gospel. Again, I ignored the prompting. (gasps) Why? Um, I was scared, man. Like, you know me. I'm a very introverted person. Like, this whole idea of going on a mission and just talking to everybody, like, that is a very frightening thing to me. I don't know how I did it in retrospect, (laughs) but, you know, I did it. But anyway, then I walk around the mall again. I'm already feeling bad about myself, but I come across the guy a third Third time. time. A third time. I walk past him, make a half-hearted attempt to say hello. It doesn't register with him. I don't try again. And I never see the guy again. And I never felt good about that. I knew that I had displeased the Lord. Ultimately, maybe nothing would have come of that experience. Maybe he wouldn't have been interested in the church at all. Maybe God sent someone else later. Maybe he did. You know, and I've had this experience before where I've done what the Lord told me and nothing came of it. I felt like he may just be testing me, making sure that I'm listening or that I'm learning to listen. Because I've had those experiences too. But um, I never saw him again. But... After that, I never received a prompting that I decl- that I denied, and um, I do feel like the Lord gave me an experience that, in essence, for- forgave me. He gave me a final opportunity in my last area. There was a kid acting up in a class that I was teaching, and I receive and I feel prompted to take him aside and talk to him. And I'm not a confrontational person, or at least at that time, I was not. But I take this young man aside and I say, "Look, man, you got to do better." You know what I'm saying? Like that was the yeah. essence of that conversation. And that conversation led to the missionaries in his area. Well, it led to him confiding in us that he had a sister at home who was not a member of the church and he wanted the missionaries to teach her. My last Sunday, she was baptized in addition to a missionary, in, in, in addition to a brother who had given up on the missionaries prior to my arrival and then committed to be baptized my last Sunday in the field. He too was baptized. And I would have... One more experience like that. There's not really time to share that experience, but um, um, I would just have more experiences mm. like that 
where I know that the Lord was communicating me directly because he needed me to do something or needed to remind me that this is how the spirit feels and you need to feel this way so that you can be a worthy instrument in my hands. Interesting. Reminds me a lot of Jonah. Like Jonah, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not going to go to the Ninevites and God sent a fish and said, yes, you are. Yes, you are going. You are yeah. doing this today. <laughs> so um, a, a, sh- a short answer, I suppose, is... Uh, I've received many spiritual witnesses of the reality of God and uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ and the truthfulness of his gospel as restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. The strength of my testimony, and you've alluded to this before, but it's greater than the strength of my grievances with the church and with the culture of our religion, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like I know several people, and I don't want to invalidate this at all, but I know several people whose grievances outweighed their testimonies, their ability to continue in church attendance or their ability to, uh, or their church attendance. And I, I don't believe there's anything wrong with most of those individuals. I just view myself as one of the more fortunate ones who have the privilege yeah. of occupying this particular space. Yeah. Yes, I, I am black, but I'm also male. I am large in stature. People aren't going to really mess with me like that. You know what I'm saying? I am educated. I'm cisgender. I occupy several spaces that allow me to have a position of relative privilege in the church to the point where I can do things that other people can't. I can hold the opinions I do where other people don't feel as safe to echo those things. And like you, I know the scriptures know well enough to feel secure in how I live out my faith, even if it that even if that doesn't line up with convention. Well, I have a question about that. Tell me, have you were there ever times where you've gotten or heard of this idea of like, oh, maybe I should leave the church or there's no place for me. Or did you ever seriously consider stepping away from the church or how did you navigate that? Certainly. Uh, One time happened when I was 12 and I learned about the priesthood ban. Like I remember I kind of felt betrayed when I learned about the priesthood ban because I was just receiving the priesthood and it seemed your father's not a member. My father is not a member. No. Okay. So that's, that's sort of a, link that that wasn't there yeah that's a link that wasn't there i had no examples of priesthood in my own home uh my only examples you know were my young men's leaders and the other men that i was regularly associated with the church um but i just remember feeling betrayed that i was just now learning about the priesthood ban as i was receiving it and it seemed to be common knowledge to everybody else that really rubbed me the wrong way and i wasn't entirely sure how i was going to persist in the church with that knowledge and uh I don't remember what spurred it, but that same grievance would come up again as I was graduating from high school. It would come up again as I spoke about uh, black issues in the church among my peers at BYU, and they would just say some ignorant things. And, you know, you know, these, this, these were times when I actually didn't have security enough in my knowledge of the church to the point where I could defend how I felt about the priesthood ban. Like people would say questionable things, I'd respond, and they would politely shut me down or shout me down in some cases. And I was like, what am I even doing here? You know what I'm saying? Like, it it was moments like that where I just felt like I didn't have an issue. In fact, that was the first time I considered maybe there's a reason there aren't so many black people in this church. You know what I'm saying? Because most reasons Mm -hmm. that I considered Mm -hmm. leaving the church had to do with my identity as a black man in it. It was just that we didn't seem to really have a place here. And when I brought this issue to people, nobody had an answer. Yeah, and what do you, what would you say to people who say, well, the pr- well, everything was fixed in 1978, and we shouldn't have these issues anymore, and everyone should just be now not saying these things? I would say they're dumb. You know, like that's a that's not a very kind thing to say. But if people want to say things were fixed in 1978, I got to ask you, where are the black people then? Like we still have 
very few numbers of black people in this church. You know, I've said it many times before, and I think Marvin Perkins says this in his uh, lecture on blacks in the scriptures, but black Americans rank highest in 11 out of 12 spiritual categories, according to the Higher Education Research Institute. Yet we don't number very many, a high percentage in the church. We're less than 3% of the church here, even though we're about 13% of the population. We should be, we should have a higher percentage of us here, yet I am the only black male in my congregation. And I'm one of like four black people in my entire congregation out of like over a hundred. So like, where are we? Like, we have to be able to address that. If you want to say that everything got fixed in 1978, you have to reckon with the fact that black people still don't feel comfortable joining this church. They don't feel that comfortable investigating the church. And there's still not that many of us here. But white people still feel comfortable saying all these things that should have been long ago disproven. Correct. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know totally how to address that. There has to be more of us here in order for us to effectively address that because white people in general, they're just not going to investigate those particular thoughts because they don't have to. Yeah. Like they can be comfortable in that ignorance because ultimately that knowledge doesn't affect yeah. their worship experience. It affects my worship experience. And until there are significant number of us who are crying for a better worship experience and who are seeking it by asking the white people to be better allies and be more sensitive to that, it's simply not going to happen. You know, and that's why I feel like I am obligated to stay is partly because I don't have that level of discomfort that would cause me to go away. And I know that I have a testimony. I know that the church is true and I have to act on that. What acting on that means is being that voice that other people cannot be because of where they're at spiritually or where they're at emotionally with mm -hmm. the church. So what would you say to black investigators? Mm. You know, I need to validate that trepidation. I need to validate any trepidation a black person would have about that church, at least where the church's relationship with black folk is concerned. Um, that the church still hasn't articulated a clear explanation for the priesthood ban and, and temple ban or properly owned its racism pre-1978 is troubling to me as a lifelong member. So I, I understand that trepidation. And the church is overwhelmingly white. We've already talked about that. It doesn't present the best picture for a prospective member of the church who's black. I'd be thinking myself, and I've expressed this, where are all the black people at? What's wrong with this church that black people don't want to join, you know? I, I, I get all of that. The, th the thing is, regardless of what I think are poor optics, if I knew for a fact that this was the Lord's church, I'd rather join and deal with the consequences, deal with whatever hardship I got to deal with, than end up missing out with a really good excuse. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would much rather go to heaven and endure everything that this world has to throw out at me than go to hell with a really good excuse. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I know that the church is true, and I have to, I have to stand in that. So for, for black folks who are considering investigating the church, I would say definitely read the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon was instrumental in my conversion. It, um, we, we, we learned so much about the nature of God, the atonement of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, and social and ecclesiastical justice from the Book of Mormon. And I don't see any theological contradictions with what is written in the Bible or with what is presented in black liberation theology. In fact, I feel like the Book of Mormon in conjunction with the Bible is a brilliant companion to black liberation theology. 
uh, and it's upon its veracity that the truthfulness of the entire church stands. So I want I would want to tell black folks to give the Book of Mormon a chance first, because if you are a Christian, if you believe in Christ, I don't know an honest seeker of truth that can read the Book of Mormon and say that it is not a testament of Jesus Christ or who can tell me that that is not the word of God. You have to be able to read that with an open mind and you have to be able to accept that book as a word of God and as a testament of Jesus Christ, knowing full well what that means. The implications of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon will ultimately lead to you accepting the restored gospel. And if you are in a position to emotionally and spiritually and mentally handle all that entails, then we need you here. Yeah, I just want to say something because I didn't talk much about the Book of Mormon. Yeah. But to me, yeah, that really is a cornerstone witness of Christ. Yeah. And the thing about it is it's very much a lot of sort of people raised in the church are like primarily about the Book of Mormon and the Bible is kind of, oh, this other something or other. But for me, you really do need both and you get better from the synergy of both of them together than either one by itself. Like the Book of Mormon should make you want to read the Bible and the Bible should make you want to read the Book of Mormon. It's not like, oh, I've got the Book of Mormon, so I don't need the Bible. That's right, not right. at all what's going on. Not. And what you've got going on here is this idea of stereoscopic vision. The fact that we have Good two word. eyes yes. that give you a different perspective actually is what makes you see in 3D. You would have yes. no depth perception yes. with one eye. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that your eyes literally give you a different angle and a yes. different perspective, yes. putting those together gives you a better much more majestic yes, lay of the land. And I think this yes, is true sir. with the Book of Mormon. It doesn't replace the Bible right. and doesn't duplicate the Bible. It And it has different perspectives. And, the, of course, those scriptures have different perspectives all in them. Right. But this gives us a much better and richer understanding of what's going on. And the Book of Mormon really, in some ways, is revival literature. It yes, is sir. written to inspire a passionate and fervent repentance and faith in Christ. Yes, sir. And... Um, it, it, that's why it was so it went like wildfire through the 19th century during yeah. the, the whole second great awakening period yeah. is that's ex- exactly what they were needing to hear and and the book of mormon was written for that day and yes, sir. It, it it is just helps it's reading the book of mormon is like a massage for my soul mm-hmm. it's just so therapeutic and and um impactful and it leads me to want to be a better Christian. I'm sure that's kind of what you were talking about right Definitely. Then. And like, why wouldn't you want more of that? You know, so many people, and you know, again, I don't want to dismiss, I'll dismiss a few of them, but like, why wouldn't you want more of God's word? Like a question I would ask people all the time on my mission is if God revealed more of his word, would you want to read it? You know, how are you going to say no to that as a Christian? Like that, that's what the book of Mormon was to me. Like, how are you going to say no to more of God's word? We could, Lord knows we could use more of it. Like, Yeah, and here's an example I would use is imagine that we didn't have the gospel of John and f- for some strange reason we found it was buried earlier and, and we found it. It was just buried somewhere in the dirt in, in Egypt and we found the gospel of John and all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you look at John, it's very different. Very different, yeah. And a lot of people would use Matthew, Mark and Luke to say no that's not right this gets these things wrong it's different uh-huh. it's different in style the Jesus is different the whole approach to the blah blah there's there's some significant perspectives but it's a yeah. stereoscopic thing you, would you deny the gospel of John because of I'm like no, it makes no I sense. think it's the same thing with the book of Mormon yeah. we've got another we have literally found in the ground another scripture that that really literally testifies to the fact that God is not going to leave a whole continent without his love. Big time. And knowledge in scripture. Yes. 
Yes. And that's that has a very expansive and universalizing view of humanity here that God loves all of God's children. That is so necessary. You know, every now and again, I get into it with uh, with other Christians about, you know, about the church or about the Book of Mormon. And some of the things they freak out about, you know, bug me a little bit. You know, they 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 focus on something like our belief in the Book of Mormon, the idea of additional scripture or about the first vision about Joseph Smith or about this notion that Jesus Christ visited people in the Americas. You know, and they do this in a manner as if that is so fantastical for Christianity. And and this is coming from somebody, a Christian, who believes that God impregnated a virgin teen who was unwed and then her demigod brown refugee spawn would go on <laughs> to heal the sick, turn water to wine, raise the dead, die himself, raise himself from the dead, and then appear to people and then ascend into heaven and then appear to two more people after his ascension into heaven. And you are going to tell me that God, that Christ cannot appear to people in Americas while you believe all that? You are going to tell me that God can't reveal more to his word, more of his word to people, even though you believe all that? Like, really what Mormons believe isn't that fantastical in the grand scheme of Christianity. You know, these particular criticisms I have a big issue with simply because they're lazy. You know what I'm saying? I get that people want to hold on to their beliefs because their beliefs are part of their identity. And if you have to challenge a piece of your, your beliefs, you have to challenge a piece of your identity. That's scary. I get that. But I also just want to say that you know, I'm an honest seeker of truth. I can honestly say that about myself. I'm somebody who values truth wherever it can be found. Do you, have you ever watched Avatar, The Last Airbender? No. Okay. Sorry. Well, some of our listeners have watched it, so I'm just <laughs> going to say this real quick. Uncle Iroh knew how to redirect lightning because of what he learned from the Water Tribe. You know what I'm saying? And then he would go on to teach the lightning deflection technique to Zuko, and without that technique, the Avatar never would have fulfilled his destiny. Mm. If Uncle Iroh held on to the dogma of the Fire Nation, Aang, the Avatar, never would have succeeded. And I think about that all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't be so dogmatic in my views of what truth is and where it comes from that I can't accept it from all sources. And this is something I would want of all Christians. We are really treating our, or uh, cheating ourselves if we're not giving ourselves an opportunity to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. That is doctrine. And I really hope that people who are listening to this, especially the uh, non-Mormon Christians who are listening to this, will take the challenge to honestly evaluate the Book of Mormon and see if it is not, in fact, a testament of Jesus Christ. And that gets back to this other point of that Latter-day Saints should be the most open-minded. The most. Of anyone. The most. Okay, you can't believe all this weird stuff and then not be open-minded. For real. Yeah. We believe some strange things as Christians. (laughs) Yes. And and we should be open to surprise. We should yes. be open to saying we were wrong. We yes. should be open to saying we don't have all truth. Yes, sir. We should be open to saying God has, uh, you know, yet to reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom it is of God. In the articles of faith. Yes. We say we believe it. We say we say that we don't have it all. Yes. Right. And so we, how dare we say oh, we know exactly what the family is going to look like? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So Hello. Let me, so let's. Let me just ask one more question. Like, what would a what would you say to a black investigator who said, "Hey, if I join this church, how will I be treated? Like, will I will I be safe?" 
I'm not going to lie to these folks and say that everywhere they go within the church that they are going to feel safe or that they're going to feel wanted or accepted. You know, sometimes you'll look around a congregation. Like if I went down to Washington, D.C., I would see at least 60 percent of the congregation look like me and that'd be great. But in most other places in this country, I'm going to look around me, particularly outside of a metropolitan area, and I'll realize, oh, crap, I might be the only black person in here and I'm going to feel alone and you're going to feel alone probably. However, if you don't feel alone or if you can get past that or if you can let your testimony carry you through that initial feeling of loneliness, you can still find a tribe. You can still find people that think the way you do and that love you for who you are. And further, if you've had the courage to investigate the church and if you can accept all that comes with the testimony of the Book of Mormon, we so desperately need you here. Like we need mm -hmm. more black folks in the church because we are instrumental in bringing this church to everybody. Like this is another reason we need more black folks in the church is because simply the church is not going to succeed without us. Like you need us here. We need you here. And it's going to be hard for us pioneers, us few that are here at the moment. But our efforts, our work and our testimonies are going to be instrumental in bringing the word of Christ people all throughout the world and we can't do that without you Ooh, i have a question what um what do you think that the rest of the church can learn from its black members that it can't learn anywhere else mm, that is a great question and one i admit i haven't thought too much about but you can oh. learn like i'm not going to say you can exclusively learn this from black mormons in particular like i could say so much about uh resilience about spiritual resilience in particular like mm -hmm that displayed by Jane Manning James and, uh, you know, you know, others, yeah. but, um, well, the 1978 experience has no other parallel, right? That is something that, 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 that is Af people of African descent can, can have a claim to yes. There's something there. Yes. What would you, what, what could the rest of us learn from, from that narrative? What you can learn from that experience, um, something that you've already said, Derek, one thing is that be open to change. And get used to the idea of things not remaining the way they are currently. Also get used to feeling uncomfortable. You know, black people had to sit in this church for over 100 years knowing mm. that they may not receive the priesthood in their lifetime, but they were here anyway because they knew the church was true. It is a bit of a slap in the face every time a white Mormon leaves the church based on something that they just don't agree with. This tells me one of two things. Either your testimony wasn't that strong or you simply don't have the emotional or spiritual resilience to deal with real spiritual conflict. Whereas black folks have been doing that since we got here. You know what I'm saying? There's something to be said of um, the spiritual resilience of black folks. That didn't happen out of nowhere. That doesn't exist independently of black people or of black saints if we can if we want to go there for a moment. We can really learn how to make or how to become comfortable in discomfort. And I feel like a lot of uh, white Mormons are going to have to do that soon as the church goes on to fill the earth and the church becomes majority brown. And as the church eventually welcomes and uh, accepts into full fellowship LGBTQ folks, um, and all their gay mm -hmm. splendor. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? That's going to be uncomfortable, but guess what? We've been here before you, and we were just fine. You can be fine as well. You, If we can stay, and if we can find our testimonies and keep our testimonies through things that we struggle with, things that legitimately disregarded us of our humanity, you can certainly do that too, just by being uncomfortable. 
So how do you reconcile your um, ongoing membership and participation in the church with uh, the whole effects on the LGBTQ community? Like, how, does, how mm. do you wrestle with that? Like, do you ever feel, well, maybe, yeah, what do you think? I did, and this was actually the last time I had a real trial of my faith. I spent about 20 hours in a 48-hour period locked in just prayer, personal study, and a lots of lots of heavy pondering because I really felt that it this was like the first time in a long time that my that my testimony was legitimately challenged. But what here's what I came out with: contrary to conventional belief, a testimony of the restored gospel and support for the LGBTQ community are not mutually exclusive. I've Amen. said on, yes. I've said on the show many many times that I don't believe the policies to be doctrine, and I explained why using the church's own definition of doctrine. Um, you know, I've said it on the episode on many episodes, but I'll just keep it brief here. According to the church, doctrine is determined by the quorum of the 15's approval and then the vote among the general membership of the church. And only six times has that happened. And none of those six instances has, um, has, uh, you know, gay marriage or gay relationships been mentioned in any of that, you know, even though one of those six times was used to canonize the Bible and the book of Mormon, you would have to find then something in the Bible that actually condemns homosexuality in all con sorry condemns being gay in all in all contexts but you'd be hard pressed to find that like most biblical scholars are not going to find that and most biblical scholars are not going to encourage anybody are actually going to advise against it to suppose that anything in classical antiquity can reasonably be used to condemn um being gay in all situations and circumstances. You're just not going to find it. So I'm just going to say again, the idea that the LGBTQ community and, uh, or rather that support for the LGBTQ community and the restored gospel are not compatible. I just reject that entirely. I hmm. reject it entirely. So like, um, yeah, I think that's the best way to say it. Well, let me ask you, back when you had this like 20-hour prayer yeah. marathon thing, Yes. did you have any close gay friends in the church um, at yeah. that time? At that time, not close gay friends in the church. Like I've had close gay, I've had gay acquaintances, but I thought more about the gay people immediately in my life. You know, at that time I was thinking about one of my bandmates, not a member of the church, but a proud gay man, a very out there. And I did see the pain of uh, the gay people that I did know. I only had, okay, sorry, that's a lie. I had one close gay friend and I thought about him too, but um, everybody else, I didn't have the, I didn't have that big of a circle. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it didn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. wondering, would you have gone to talk to your gay friend in the church? No, like because the thing was, even though I did, I did, I did a reach out. Like, I did send a little Facebook message, but we didn't talk for any extended period of time. Plus, all I wanted to do was find peace with what was going on with my own faith and what the church was doing. Like, I wanted to strengthen myself before I tried to go to somebody else and try to strengthen them. I had to make peace with what I was experiencing before I tried to help somebody else. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps it was selfish, but in that moment, I was just concerned with getting answers from God. I was like, is this... Is this real? Is this from you? How am I supposed to feel about this? What am I supposed to do about it? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, like you didn't ask this, but I'll tell you, I came out with a piece that basically said, you're not going to get an answer now, but I do have an answer and you'll be able to make peace with that. It's okay that you don't agree. 
you don't have to agree with this. Mm -hmm. This isn't ultimately something that is doctrine. And I found peace in that until I ultimately arrived at the conclusions that you and I just went over. Yeah, and how much of this peace is based on knowing that these things will be fixed in the church? A lot of it. Like, a lot of my peace is based on just knowing my on uh, my belief that this isn't from God. This belief that uh, these policies that are affecting members of the LGBTQ community aren't from God. But yeah, another big part of it is ultimately knowing that if this is the Lord's church, it has to work for everybody. You know what I'm yep. saying? And if it doesn't if it doesn't work for everybody, then the church doesn't work because that is the crux of our doctrine that all are alike unto God, male mm-hmm. and female, black mm-hmm. and white, bond and free, Jew and Gentile, you know, gay and straight, I would Yay. add. You know what I'm saying? Just gay and straight. If, if we don't have a way for members of the LGBTQ community to enjoy the privileges that I enjoy, then this doesn't work. Yeah, interesting. So I have a few um, gay friends in the church in the Boston area, uh-huh. but I, I don't act. I'm not really close with any of them, and it's it's interesting because here's the here's the one thing that I was surprised about when I joined the church. I thought being gay would be the weird thing. <laughs> I thought that that is uh, is going to like set me apart, and that's going to be the thing that is going to be most unusual to the members of the church. And it turns out everyone everyone in the church has a gay brother, or a gay cousin, or a we breed cousin. gays. Yeah, like <laughs> that's not people knew the gays. Yeah. When I came in, I thought that would be my my sort of biggest difference. But actually, what's weird is that I'm a biblical scholar. People don't yeah. people don't have oh no one goes up to me and say oh my cousin's a biblical scholar right, right right no one does that I mean because every people this is I think what what makes me f- and I don't want to say like I don't feel like I fit in because there's a part of me that does really see that there's a um something stuck there right 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 that people don't know quite what to do quite they don't know how to relate they don't they don't see it as a real life work like being a lawyer or a, or a doctor or an accountant or a marketing whatever all these things that mormon men typically do <laughs> like um and i'm not the only biblical scholar in the church right but it's so rare that i don't really feel like i have a peer there yeah uh, at least in the boston area and so that's kind of that to me is actually makes me stick out more okay that's fair uh, than the gay piece, like, and and the thing is, being gay, that's not even the most interesting thing about me at it's all. It's really not. It's not. Like, <laughs> there's way other, other things. Um, and so that's kind of where I where I am. I mean, I'm I've made my journey in the church, um, supported by a lot of people. There's people who could have made m- my journey harder that didn't. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate for that. Yeah. And uh. Yeah, what would you say to LGBT investigators? Because that's a really because <laughs> I think eighty percent of our people who are LGBT and raised in the church leave the church. Yeah, I didn't know it was that high of a number. It is very high. That's crazy. Very high because a lot of them are like, I want to get married. I want to have yeah. a partner. I want to build a family, and there's I can't do that in the church, and a lot leave. And I'm, yeah, and and so it's a very hard ask for gay investigators. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm in a real position to advise anybody on how to handle their own oppression. But what I will say is simply that I'm here for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. I feel like the only thing I should say is that 
I'm here for you. I'll walk with you. I'll talk with you. That's how I'll share my love for oh, you. Oh, nice. That is, <laughs> that is what the primary song teaches us. I simply want, I'm going to be an advocate for you for your humanity, however that looks and however you want me to be. All I want to do is simply let you know that you're loved and that if I can do anything to make your stay in the church an easier one, a more peaceful one, and a more uh, enriching experience of worship, uh-huh. that is what I'm going to do for you. But if you feel like your journey, your spiritual journey at this point does not include being in the church, I'm going to respect that too. Not everybody can do what Derek and I are doing. Not everybody can do, with regard to this question, what Derek is doing. Like some people either don't have the emotional stamina or they don't have the spiritual stamina and that's okay. Or they don't have the privilege. Or they don't have the privilege. Yes. Like, and that's totally fine. Like I have a lot of other privileges in my life that make it more navigable to me yeah. than, than, than others. So again, if your journey takes you outside the church, I'm going to respect that too. But if you have it in you to stay, I'm going to do whatever I can to make your journey an easy one. Nice. Easier one. Like... Yeah. Easy, it's never going to be easy. Yeah. Not a cheap experience. So anything we should say to wrap up? I don't know. I did not think about all of that. I don't think we need to say anything to wrap up. Um, this might merit a part two. I don't know. I know there's a lot of things yeah. you wanted to get to, but you know well, we are at time, and I think we got off to a good start as far as explaining to people why we are where we are and you know why we believe. I just want to to sum up really quickly yes, is to talk about how Christ-centered we are and sometimes the ideal is better than the practice. Ah. There's hypocrisy everywhere, but I yes, think sir. the ideal, you know, I remember in the mid must have been like the late uh, early 2000s or like maybe about 20 years ago, they changed the name of the, ch- the 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 typography of the name of the church. It used to be this the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in this weird then it was the Church of and then Jesus Christ in the biggest <laughs> boldest letters. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, Jesus is at the center. This is not the church of President Monson. This isn't the church of the bishop. This is the church of Jesus Christ on the one hand. And then all of us, the Latter-day Saints on the other. Yes, sir. That's who it is. And um, we should remember that, that the, uh, that the leaders of the church are really fellow servants and to focus everything on Christ. And we're at our best when we focused on Christ. And that's really what happened to me is joining this church, taking this step, brought me closer to Christ. It infused my life with more faith in Christ. It helped me become more like Christ. It mm. helped me see Christ more clearly. And it just, yeah, I think Christ is, is all. Yeah. And that's kind of where I would end it. That's a great place to end. So uh, thank you guys for tuning in on this special bonus episode of Why We Believe. Yeah, thanks. And send us any questions you have about this, any questions or comments. And share this with whoever you think would benefit from what Derek and I have shared with you guys today. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>